Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. And I do ask you to open your Bibles now to the ninth chapter of Luke. And after a few weeks, we again return to our study of this gospel. It's been a while, and so I'm thankful to be back here and back in this gospel. We have been working through this gospel, as you know, as a church for a number of years. And we come this morning to a very pivotal portion in this gospel. This is that very famous confession of Peter. It is nearly impossible for me to communicate the importance of this passage, especially in terms of the flow and the structure of this gospel, but this is a very key passage. In fact, each week we've been sort of building in importance, and we will continue to do that until that very critical shift that I've been talking about, which takes place in verse 51 of chapter 9. In fact, verse 51 is the great hinge point in the Gospel of Luke, and so the passage here this morning is is crucial to where the entire narrative is heading. And so with that, I do have uh, quite a bit to say to you this morning, and so just by way of introducing this passage, let me read these words for you, these words which contain the most important question, in fact, the ultimate question that you could ever answer. And so starting in verse 18, I'm going to read through verse 22 of chapter 9. Here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, And it happened that while he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. If you had to sum up the purpose for why Luke is even writing his gospel, um, you could essentially boil it down to the fact that Luke is seeking to settle the important question of Jesus' identity. In fact, since the very beginning of the gospel, Luke has been recording testimony. Depending on when you came to this church, you've seen some of these testimonies. Some of you have had the opportunity to see all of them. But we have, just to refresh your memory, first of all, seen that testimony of the angel Gabriel back in chapter 1, who, if you remember, he comes to Mary and declares to her that she would bear the Messiah in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We have seen the testimony of Zacharias, that old priest and father of John the Baptist. Remember, he was the one struck deaf and mute uh, when he was told that his very old wife, Elizabeth, would bear the forerunner in prophecy of, or fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. And so once his wife conceived and gave birth, he was released from that muteness. He, of course, declared the faithfulness of God, but with all that, declared forth the identity of both John and Jesus. 
In chapter 2, we have the testimony of the angels who come to the shepherds in the field by night, and they declare to them the identity of Jesus who would be born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Old Testament promise. Later on in chapter 2, we have the testimony of those two faithful Jews who were regarded as exceedingly righteous in a day of much apostasy and unrighteousness. It was the testimony of those faithful saints named Anna and Simeon in the temple as they beheld the baby Jesus. Remember, they testified there that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah who had come to fulfill their Old Testament scriptures and, of course, be the divine Savior of sinners. Toward the end of chapter 2, we have the testimony then of Jesus himself as a 12-year-old boy in the middle of the temple who engages in theological discourse with the scribes and the Pharisees. He is utterly shocking them there with his knowledge as he is debating with them, and then there he declares himself to be the very Son of God. Remember, his mother Mary comes to him. She's terrified that she thinks she lost him. She seeks to rebuke him, but then he questions her by asking, did you not know that it was necessary that I be about my father's business? Speaking, of course, of God the Father. And so there already, even at the age of 12, he has a very full understanding of who he is, and he reveals his own self-understanding of his divine identity. In chapter 3, we come to hear then the testimony of John the Baptist as he is crying out in the wilderness. Remember, he points to Jesus as the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so we have there the testimony of God's very forerunner in the ministry of John the Baptist. And then immediately after that, in chapter 3, we come to God the Father's testimony of Jesus as the Son. As Jesus comes up out of the water at his baptism, you remember he declares that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we have there even the Father's testimony of the Son. In chapter 4, we then come to Satan's testimony of Jesus as the Son of God. Remember, he seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, and there two times refers to Jesus as the Son of God. He says in verse 3, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And then in verse 9, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself from the temple mount and have these angels catch you. And so even Satan as well knows perfectly the divine identity of this man, Jesus. In fact, that is the very leverage that he seeks to use to tempt him. Later on in chapter 4, you then have the demonic testimony of Jesus' identity. You remember the demon there in the Capernaum synagogue who takes up residence within a man. Jesus preaches that phenomenal sermon from Isaiah 61, declaring himself to be the very fulfillment of that Old Testament text, which is, of course, a text predicting of the coming Messiah. He declares that he is the very subject of that text and therefore the very fulfillment of God's promise. And so at that recognition, it's very interesting, the demon then blurts out, he cries out for Jesus not to destroy him. He calls him there the Son of God. In fact, he calls him the Holy One of God. And so even the testimony of demons testify to the divine identity of this man, Jesus. In chapter 5, we then see the testimony of the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. You'll remember there that in verse 8 of chapter 5, they bring in that massive catch of fish at the word of Jesus. And so Peter then immediately falls on his face and declares Jesus as Lord. He recognizes him in some way to be that sovereign Lord over creation. 
In fact, he tells Jesus to depart from him because he is a sinner and holiness cannot have sin in its presence. And so very similar to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Peter recognizes the holy divinity of Jesus and commands him to depart from him. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 37, you have the testimony of the prostitute coming to Jesus. And you remember she falls on her face. She anoints him with some very expensive perfume. She even washes his feet with her very own tears. She recognizes him to be who he says he is, that he alone can forgive sin, that he alone can purify her and make her whole again, which of course is a work reserved for God and God alone. And so even the unclean prostitute in the gospel testifies to his divine identity. In chapter 8, we then see the testimony of Legion. Here again, we see the demonic realm testifying to exactly who Jesus is, that he is indeed the son of the most high God, as they call him in verse 28. And so they're not merely one, but at least 2,000 demons recognize who Jesus is. And so there is no debate, even within the satanic and demonic realm, they understand the identity of this man. And so the point to understand is that as far as the record of Luke is concerned, the identity of Jesus is unmistakable. In fact, as one man said on this, he said, there is no way to mistake in the gospel of Luke or any other gospel the identity of Jesus unless you flat out refuse to believe what the Bible says. You could take all the efforts to discover the, quote, historical Jesus. You can take all the confounding complexities of false religion. You can take all the wrong assertions of who Jesus is, and you can chart them all up to the fact that people refuse to believe the clear testimony of Scripture. And that is what unbelief always boils down to. In fact, as the Christmas season begins to approach, um, there will once again be, just like there is every other year, program after program on the History Channel. They are interviewing theologians. They will interview archaeologists and liberal scholars and liberal theologians and all attempting to uncover again the, quote, historical or real Jesus and the true identity of this man that caused such disruption in first century Palestine and so much so that our entire calendar is literally based off his existence. And yet every single one of them, as they do every single year, will get it wrong. And again, why? Well, because they refuse to believe the clarity of Scripture's testimony. In fact, how you can get a PhD from spending a lifetime analyzing the Scriptures and yet still come up with anything less than the true identity of Jesus is, is not only confounding, but I think it's a clear testimony as to the hardness of sin and the deadness of hearts. And so the Gospel of Luke, or any other Gospel for that matter, is not a muddled record. There is zero ambiguity in the Gospels over the identity of Jesus. It is not confused. It is not something mysterious. Rather, it is clear. It is revealing. It is precise. And which, by the way, is precisely why all liberal attempts, which seek to discredit the true identity of Jesus, must always attack, first and foremost, the credibility of Scripture's witness. The Scriptures themselves are very clear on the issue. It's really an open and shut case. And so if they're to discredit Jesus, then they have to discredit the scriptures which testify about him. 
And so they are always trying to marshal new evidence and new ways of piecing together the gospels to try and show how they're false or how they're manufactured in some way. But unfortunately for them, scripture has stood the test of time. It, in fact, keeps standing the test of time and every attempt of scholarly and historical scrutiny, and that has been taking place for the past 2,000 years, and yet scripture remains clear. And so the bottom line is that they just don't want it to be true. I mean, it's pretty obvious, I think, what the Gospels testify to, and so they got to just keep contriving up new ways to figure out how to discredit the authenticity of the Scriptures and the Gospels in particular. But if you take the Scriptures, and especially the Gospel of Luke, for what it claims to be, namely a historical record of things which took place, again, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, then the identity of Jesus could not be clearer. There's testimony after testimony, witness after witness, person after person, both on the side of Jesus and utterly against Jesus, and all declaring forth the exact same testimony. And so what we come to this morning is yet one more historical record of witness as to the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? In fact, as I've been asking you, And I've been asking you the same exact question just about every single sermon for the past five or six passages. And by the way, you're going to get the exact same question again at the end of this sermon. But all throughout the gospel, Luke has been building his case as to the identity of Jesus. And so for the last few passages in particular, Luke has been forcing a very explicit question, and that is, so who do you understand Jesus to be? That is the question. In fact, that is the ultimate question. In fact, that is the most important question that you could ever ask or answer. And because the right answer to that question will determine your eternal state. It was the question asked by the disciples after Jesus calms the waves in chapter 8 and verse 26. They see him calm the wind and the waves and preserve their life. And so their question There at the end of such a confounding experience is, so who is this man that he even commands the water and the winds and they obey him? And so again, the identity of Jesus is the central issue. It was the very question of the crowds typified in the words of Herod in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 9, where Luke there, remember, records, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had arisen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. So the crowd is speculating. They're all wondering who he is, who is this man, what is his purpose, what is his identity. And then in verse 9, and Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, and here it is, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And so again, that is the ominous question of this gospel. Who is this man? Who is this figure who says and does such confounding things? And so Luke has been building his case, and he has been building testimonial witness as to the identity of Jesus. And so the passage here this morning brings this most critical question now to an ultimate head. This is a passage in which the closest follower of Jesus 
who've now been with him and seen him and heard him and have been taught by him and have been given power by him and have been ministered to by him, they will make the answer to this question explicitly known. In fact, it is as if this is their final exam by Jesus. What other evidence at this point needs to be brought before them? What else do they need to know? What else do they need to see? And so there is nothing deep in a technical sense or complex about this passage before us this morning, but it is an unbelievably important passage to meditate upon. And because in this passage, hear this, we are given the very key to eternal life. Everyone wants to know how to get to heaven? Here it is. Or at least this is where it begins. And so again, this is about life's ultimate question. This is about eternity's ultimate question. And so let's begin by taking a look, first of all, at the setting, starting in verse 18, and we're just going to build out the scene a little bit. And I've got just a few points for you this morning, but first of all, notice the setting, verse 18. Here again, what Luke records, he says, and it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them saying, who do the multitudes say that I am? Now, there has been a theme in Luke And I brought this out a number of times for you, and so I won't take the time to develop it again in full. But any time in the Gospel of Luke that something major or something critical is about to happen, especially related to Jesus' life or ministry in particular, Luke indicates that by recording that Jesus pulls away, but for the purpose of prayer. In fact, it happens at least seven times. We saw it at the beginning of his formal three-year ministry, just immediately after he's baptized and he's given that divine commission by the Father when he comes up out of the water. You remember the Spirit descends upon him as of a dove, commissioning him. He then immediately pulls away in chapter 4 into the desert for a period of 40 days where he is then assaulted by the temptations of the devil. And so the question, though, is why does he do that? What is his purpose in pulling away? Well, his purpose presumably was to pray and isolate himself before he begins this very important ministry for three years. And so again, a very critical moment in the gospel. He does it again before his very first confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes in chapter 6, his great enemies in this gospel. Before his very first interaction with them where they're seeking to trap him, Luke again records that Jesus pulls away for prayer and communion with his father. We see him do it before he selects his 12 in chapter 6. He pulls away for prayer and isolation before that very critical selection. We'll see it happen again, Lord willing, in just a couple of weeks before his transfiguration, where he for the first time reveals his divine glory. And then we see it perhaps most prominently before the night of his crucifixion, where he is praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so there are a few select times in which Luke marks some critical events in the gospel by Jesus pulling away for the purpose of prayer. He is praying and meditating before he needs to endure a very important task. And so notice that is exactly what we see him doing here again in verse 18. And so whatever is about to come, the point to understand is that we would do well to pay attention. This is a pivotal moment, and Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wants to make certain that we don't miss it. And so Jesus pulls away, and notice Luke indicates that he is alone, but he is not really alone because his disciples are with him. 
But again, thematically, there's, there's a heightening here of importance. And so Luke states that he pulls away alone for prayer. His disciples are, are like, they're with him, but they're likely just set off a bit. And so in a certain sense, he is alone for this time of prayer. But regardless, the point is that this is an important moment in Jesus' ministry. And so he pulls away to the northern part of Israel, the most northern part of Israel at this point, this location known as Caesarea Philippi. Luke doesn't record that detail, but Matthew and Mark do. In fact, remember, uh, after Herod the Great has died, Herod the Great was the one in uh, the beginning of Matthew's gospel who had all the babies killed because he hears of some king who has been born in fulfillment of prophecy, and so he doesn't want competition. But after he dies, he doesn't want anyone to rule as great of a region as him. And so he breaks up this region essentially into four different parts to be ruled by four different petty kings or under kings, hence the word tetrarch. There's four of them. The area of Galilee is ruled by one of his sons, also called Herod. But this region here was ruled by another son called Philip. And Remember, the whole known world at this point is essentially ruled by Caesar of Rome. And so Philip named this area Caesarea Philippi. This was Caesar's kingdom, but this particular region was governed by Philip. And so Caesarea or Caesar Philippi. And so again, this was the northernmost portion in all of Israel. And that is an important detail thematically and theologically because Jerusalem is way down in the south. And so this is about as far away as you can get from the institution and far away from the Jewish establishment. This is as far away as you can get from the corruption and the apostasy of that dead religion. And so Jesus wanting to pull away from the suffocating crowd that we've been seeing and having just come off the height of his ministry, at least in terms of popularity and performing the largest scale miracle that he would ever perform, namely the feeding of the 5,000, he now pulls away with his disciples alone. And so that is the setting. This is, this is a marked separation that Jesus is now creating between him and the nation. In fact, this is the beginning of the end, if you will. He has been showing grace upon grace with the people and the crowds. He has been teaching them and healing them and feeding them and proclaiming the kingdom of God to them. And yet all they want from him at this point is bread and healing. They want a Messiah who will free them from the yoke of Rome and establish their ultimate welfare state. They're looking for a political or military deliverer. And so he keeps talking about a kingdom, and yet they remain deaf and blind and hardened because they keep thinking that this kingdom is a political reality. And so they don't get it. They, they like aspects of what Jesus is saying, but the problem is that they keep interpreting his words through their own expectations. They're blinded by what they so want in a Messiah that they can't seem to understand the true purpose of God's Messiah. And so it is at this point in which Jesus now begins to make this very critical separation between him and the nation. In fact, you see some of that come out in the second half of verse 18, where Jesus asks the first question of his disciples. And so notice what he asks again, second half of verse 18, he begins to question them saying, so who do the multitudes say that I am? Who do the multitudes say that I am? That is the term aklos, often translated as crowds. That is the word as we have been seeing that is used by Luke as a technical term in reference to those neutral sort of half-hearted religious people. 
These are religious consumers. These are people who are willing to follow Jesus so long as Jesus keeps providing for them what they want him to provide for them. These are people who have made the Messiah in their own image. They are looking for a Messiah that will fulfill their own twisted interpretation of what God has actually promised in a Messiah. In other words, he is asking the disciples as to what is the common public, popular religious consensus about me. And they give three responses. Notice verse 19. And they answered and said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Matthew includes that they also say Jeremiah. Now, again, these were people looking for a military and political figure in their Messiah. Some say John because Jesus was causing just as much disruption as John. And not only that, but he was also receiving now the eye of the political and secular rulers, just as John did. Others think Elijah, and likely because, remember, he was the one who went up into heaven without ever dying, and so if one of the prophets is going to come back, then it makes sense that it was him. And then others say that it's one of the other Old Testament prophets. They're ones who are not willing to be definitive about which one, but whoever Jesus is, he seems to be functioning in the exact same manner as these prophets of old. And so what's interesting is that every single one of these three categories were a fancy word, eschatological preachers. That is to say that the content of their message was one of end times restoration of the nation. Remember, the prophets always spoke of a time in which the nation would be destroyed. They always spoke of a time in which all their enemies would be defeated. In fact, that was explicitly made known in Elijah's ministry and many of the other prophets as well. And then John, of course, shows up on the scene um, preaching that, that message of repentance. But what came with that message was the imminent establishing of God's kingdom. And so in some way, all three of these options spoke of national restoration. This would be a time of power, a time of peace. This would be a time of rule and authority over and against all foreign powers and all forms of oppression. And so this is exactly what they were looking for. This is what they wanted. And so seeing how Jesus is now able to catch the eye of even the secular Roman authorities and the fact that his message was one of God's true kingdom, they were beginning to think that Jesus was somebody important. But the problem is that it was hard for them to wrap their minds around him being the Messiah in some way, and mostly because he kept distancing himself from having anything to do with Jerusalem or the institution. And so he was doing all these amazing things. He was saying almost unheard of things, and he was doing it all with incredible authority as it's recorded for us. But the problem is how could he be the Messiah, this political or military figure, if he just keeps spending his time out on the fringes? He is way up in Capernaum. He is out in the wilderness. He is teaching on the hillsides. He has no real home. He's just this traveling itinerant preacher. In fact, his closest followers are tax collectors and fishermen. Keeps associating himself with the likes of prostitutes and political agitators. He keeps ruffling the feathers of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the people, they might understand that he is unique in some way. We know that he is not like anyone from the establishment of Rome. We know he's certainly not like anyone from the institution of Judaism. But that is sort of the problem. He doesn't seem to fit their notion of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so he is, in fact, more like a 
prophet. He is like these men of old who used to travel around and cry out against the establishment as opposed to working within the establishment. And so if he is not with the establishment, if he is not within that system of Judaism, then how can he possibly lead the nation in national revolution? And so he fits more accurately the description of a prophet. And these people who know their history quite well can't help but to be intrigued with someone who appears to function much like one of the prophets of old. They are not willing to be conclusive about that yet, but they certainly aren't willing to dismiss Jesus. Whether he is the Messiah, we do not know, but he certainly seems to be functioning in the very least as a prophet. And of course, that is exactly then why Jesus has begun the process of distancing himself from these people. They have all heard him teach. They have all seen him perform miracles that attest to the faithfulness of his message. And yet hardened in their hearts, they keep missing his point because they want him to be, and hear this, they want him to be what they want him to be. And so the disciples here affirm the crowd's testimony that was given to Herod in verses 7 through 9, that this is either John, this is Elijah, or this is some other prophet of old, perhaps even raised from the dead. But regardless, and this is key, he is merely a prophet. And so Jesus does not expand on that. He does not correct that in some way. He does not ask for their thoughts on the crowd's opinion of him. Rather, notice he then immediately moves to direct the exact same question toward them. And so notice verse 19, and this is the test. This is the ultimate test. He says, but who do you say that I am? And notice the adversative there with the word, but. In other words, he is not at all concerned really with the crowd's opinion of him. Rather, he is... is most concerned, and I would argue only concerned with the disciples' perspective of him, and so much so that the word you here is fronted in what is known as the emphatic position in the Greek. In other words, he is saying you, almost like pointing the finger you, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, always being the first one to speak, usually without thinking, This time, his lack of hesitation serves him well, but notice he blurts out, speaking here as representative of the 12, he gives that phenomenal confession, second half of verse 20, he says that you are the Christ. And that is important, notice, you are the Christ, definite article, you are the fulfillment of a particular promise. And also notice, you are the Christ of God, you are, in other words, God's Christ, possessive. In other words, you are not the Christ that belongs to the crowd or the Christ made in the image of the crowd. Rather, you are God's true Christ. You are the fulfillment of God's promise. You are the one whom he has sent. You are his chosen one. So you are not the Messiah because it has been foisted upon you or merely declared by you by some political or institutional Agenda, rather, you are who God himself has put forth. We understand this. In other words, Peter doesn't regard Jesus as the Christ because he is fulfilling some kind of temporal or nationalistic or even personal expectations of him. Rather, he understands Jesus to be the Christ of God because it has been at this point amply attested to him. 
He has heard the message. He has had that message confirmed by many miracles. And so he says that you are God's Christ. And so here you have just a tremendous confession. That is what this is. This is a a confession of Jesus' true identity. And so this is the very summit of the gospel. Notice the contrast here. It couldn't be any starker. You have the confession of human opinion in the crowd, but then you have the confession of divine revelation in the disciples. In fact, in Matthew's account of this, perhaps the more famous record of this event, in fact, turn there with me if you can, Matthew chapter 16. This again is Matthew's rendition of this event and a passage that I am certain that many of you are familiar with, very famous words, but Matthew records this starting in verse 13 of chapter 16. He says these words, he says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? The son of man is a titular designation or a title given by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 to speak of the coming Messiah. It was a favorite title that Jesus took upon himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he adds this, verse 17, and Jesus said to him, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So again, this is a confession. This is a confession, understand, that can never result from public consensus or human opinion. And why? Well, because it requires, hear this, always divine revelation. This is a confession that requires a supernatural act within the heart of a person to recognize Jesus to be who he says he is. And so an accurate understanding of Jesus will not come about through scholarly opinion or consensus, will not happen through some experience in your life. You certainly won't find it by digging deep within yourself. Rather, this is a reality that must be revealed to you and how will through a divine work of the Father within your heart. And so again, you can't marshal enough evidence to sort of convince a person into heaven. Can't just keep doing social works and hoping that that'll somehow lead people to a right understanding of Jesus. Rather, at the end of the day, the confession of Jesus as the Christ is only, and hear this, it is only wrought about through a divine revelation of the Father within the heart. In fact, how is it that a person can go to church their entire life, have the word of God poured into them by their parents, by their pastors, by their Sunday school teachers, by their small group leaders, and still never make the profession that Jesus is the Christ. Never make a confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, they might understand intellectually, they might even understand in some way religiously, but they have never, here, and this is the point, according to Matthew, they have never been given divine illumination within the heart. This is not something that you can get to by mere flesh and blood, as Jesus says. This is not the product of reason or historical analysis. This is a supernatural work. 
In fact, notice what Jesus goes on to say, verse 18. He says, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Roman Catholicism, of course, takes that to be a reference to Peter as the first pope, and there is a sense in which Peter does become the foundation of the church, so to speak, as he preaches that phenomenal sermon in Acts chapter 2 where there's the outpouring of the Spirit and you sort of have the birth of the church. It's all kicked off there in Acts chapter 2 at, at his sermon. But more faithful to the context here when Jesus says in verse 18, notice that upon this rock I will build my church, you have to answer the question as to what the pronoun this is in reference to. What is the antecedent of the pronoun? That is, to what does the pronoun refer well, notice it's not primarily in reference to Peter himself and because Jesus could have very easily just stated, and upon you I will build my church, which would have been good Greek. Rather, notice he states, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so what is the this or this rock in reference to? Well, it's in reference primarily to the confession of Peter which is to say that Jesus will build his church, and how will he do it? Well, through everyone who makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. That is the rock. That is the foundation upon which the church will be built. Which, by the way, is exactly what Peter then exhorts the people to do in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, You'll remember in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, he says these words. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, how? With miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And so he says in verse 38, so repent, that is, change your mind. That is what the word repent means. So repent as to whom you understand this man, Jesus, to be. So how will Jesus build his church? Well, through everyone who recognizes and makes a confession that Jesus is God's Christ. And that is exactly what happens. 3,000 men in a moment are Converted, they confess Jesus as the Christ. They confess him not merely as a man. They confess that he is not merely a prophet. Rather, through the divine revelation of the Father within their hearts, they are pierced in their hearts, verse 37. They are pierced in their hearts because they come to understand that this Jesus, whom they have been hearing so much about, was indeed God's Messiah. And at that recognition, their world comes collapsing in on them because in that moment, they come to realize that God has sent him, but we've killed him. God was faithful, he sent him, but they did not recognize him and so they killed him. 
Good news is that God raises them up again, and so they could still repent. There was still time to repent. Grace was here. This resurrection was furnished proof that this man, Jesus, was indeed God's true Messiah. They killed him, but God brought him back to life. And so God at that moment illumines their hearts at the outpouring of the Spirit to recognize this. And so back in chapter 9 of Luke, there are still many things that these disciples have to learn, which is why in verse 21, Jesus then instructs them to tell no one about this revelation. They still need to shake off some of that nationalistic, temporal understandings of the role of the Messiah that has been so ingrained to them through the religion of Judaism. They were not ready to yet speak on these things. They were not ready to accurately herald all the implications of what such a confession would mean. But regardless, in God's incredible grace, they have come to profess that most critical confession. And so this is where it begins. This is where the life of true discipleship begins. You don't come to Jesus because he has something temporally or nationalistically or experientially or economically or financially, whatever it might be. Rather, you come to Jesus because he is the one who God has put forth as his eternal Messiah. He has come to establish his kingdom and rescue the sinner. And this is a kingdom not of this world. In fact, that is exactly why Jesus instructs them, notice, to tell no one. In fact, he uses two very strong words in that statement, these words of warning and instruction. In fact, those are military terms that are giving orders, but also outlining the charges if one is found guilty of breaking such orders. And so this was a very serious charge. And the reason for that, again, is because they still had so much to learn. There is nothing more serious than getting the message of Jesus wrong, which is why James will say, let not many of you become teachers. They still had an inadequate understanding of the kingdom and the reality of what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. They might have his identity accurate at this point, but they had no idea as to what that now meant. They'd probably still be talking about some temporal kingdom, probably something to do with the overthrow of Rome. In fact, that is something that is confirmed later in the gospel. But as you and I know, that is not to be the nature of Jesus' messiahship. In fact, Jesus goes on to tell them something that would have utterly shocked their senses. Notice he tells them the nature of why he was sent and therefore the true role of God's Messiah in the world. Notice he was not sent for earthly conquest. This was not about political or military purposes. He was not sent to throw off the yoke of Rome and gain back their land. Rather, notice verse 32, the Son of Man must suffer. Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Talk about a plot twist if you're a good Jew. In fact, this is the first time that any of these men would have heard anything about a crucified or suffering Messiah. This would have no doubt created all kinds of disorientation and confusion in their minds. 
To you and I, this is all that we have ever known about Jesus being on this side of the cross, but you have to understand from the perspective of these Jewish disciples who, again, were raised in Judaism and have followed Jesus now for many, many months, this is the first time that they're hearing anything about a Messiah that must suffer. This would have exploded all kinds of categories for them, unbelievable confusion, And what's interesting is notice how Jesus states it here. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. I have talked about that word in past. It's the Greek word day. It's it's a term of prophetic fulfillment. In other words, in theological terms, this is what is known as a divine must. It is a term saying that certain things must come about and they must come about by the hand of God. And so built into the statement of Jesus here is that certain things must come about, but precisely because they're to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And God is always faithful to his prophetic words, which is to say that this is not something that Jesus is just sort of coming up with. Might have been foreign to their ears because they, again, were so entrenched in apostate Judaism, but the notion of a suffering Messiah is certainly not foreign to Old Testament scripture. And so while the nation, again, was so caught up in that political and military idea of a Messiah, Jesus comes along and reveals his identity as now a suffering Messiah. He is God's true Messiah, and because he will be the fulfillment of God's actual prophecies. And so certain things must happen. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the very first time that God lays out his promise of the gospel anywhere in the scriptures happens right away in Genesis 3. He says in something known as the Proto-Evangelion, just a fancy term, means the first gospel. He states to the devil in verse 15, as he's issuing out those curses after the fall, he tells the serpent those famous words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, talking about the devil, and you, the devil, shall bruise him, the Christ, on the heel. What does that imply? Well, that implies that whoever this Messiah would be, he might not be defeated in an ultimate sense. He will not receive a blow to the head, but he will still be bruised. He will not be crushed and destroyed in a final way, but he will undergo satanic harm. In other words, from the very beginning, it was already made known that the Messiah was to suffer. He would undergo shame and opposition. There are many, many Old Testament passages that we could go on to show this, too many to even go through, but perhaps most famously and most well-known to you is that text of Isaiah 53 talking about the suffering servant or the suffering Messiah, a text of Scripture that Orthodox Jews to this day still have no idea what to do with. The prophecy there states in verse 4, he says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Listen to that language of suffering. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. For all of us like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth, but by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Like no doubt that Jesus had that very image in his mind as he is saying these words to his disciples in verse 22, especially this idea of being taken away. Notice again, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. That is a very strong compound term of being cast out. John picks up on that idea in chapter 1 and 11 of his gospel when he says, and he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He was to be rejected. He was to be cast out. He was to be handed over. Notice it's not ultimately the Romans here who have rejected him, but it would be his own. It was his own people, his own nation. In fact, the phrase there in verse 22 of the elders, chief priests, and scribes are all governed by a singular article. It's the word the. And so notice it's not the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Rather, it's just the elders, chief priests, and scribes, speaking of them all as a collective. And so this is actually a reference to something known as the Sanhedrin. It's that governing class of religious and political leaders. These were Jews. These were, in fact, the head representatives of the entire nation. And so the point to understand is that this was to be a holistic rejection of the nation embodied in this apostate leadership. And so it was by his own that he must be killed. The fact that Isaiah 53 confirms, and yet still completely missed by the Jews. In fact, as I've been telling you from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 9 and verse 50, Jesus here has been ministering in Galilee. He's been teaching. He's been performing his miracles. He's been gathering all of his disciples. And so now, after all of this time, he finally pulls away to the north, the very north, Caesarea Philippi, again, as far away from the establishment and the crowds as you could possibly be. He looks at his true disciples who are following him on his own terms. He poses to them, the most important question that they could ever answer. And then at that confession, starting in verse 51, we will now see him literally set his face toward Jerusalem, as Luke says, and where for the rest of the gospel, Jesus will now spend the remainder of his nine months on a singular trajectory, making a beeline south toward Jerusalem to the very place where the nation has always killed her prophets, but for the purpose of dying for that confession. And so just an amazing moment in the gospel. Again, this is the summit. This is the veritable climax. But for now, the disciples do not understand these things. In fact, in the second half of verse 43, let your eyes drop. Notice what he says. He states, but while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they, the disciples, did not understand that statement, and it was concealed from them. Why? So that they would not perceive it. Again, a very strange statement. There was still so much that Jesus had to do. There were many things that Jesus had to accomplish and many things that he had to 
teach them, but as these events would unfold. And so they were not yet ready to wrestle with the notion of a crucified Messiah. And so Jesus didn't want them preoccupied with that reality. Rather, he wanted to instill in them all the more the reality that he was indeed the Christ sent from God. And for now, that was sufficient. He gave them hints and shadows of what was to come, but it was sufficient for the time to first be convinced as to the identity of Jesus. He was the Messiah. He was God's Christ. In fact, as you go about the process of evangelizing and discipling in your own life, do not make the mistake of thinking that the people to whom you're talking to need to understand everything like in a moment. This is a process. This is a progressive process that systematically unfolds for a person more and more fullness of divine truth. People don't understand everything right away. Be patient. Be patient. Just begin with the basics. Who is Jesus? Who do they understand him to be? They might not know all the implications of that. They might even receive him, recognize him as the Christ. They still might not even know, though, everything that they have actually signed up for and calling him Lord, but that'll come. In fact, next week, Lord willing, we'll see Jesus begin to develop the implications of what it means to profess him as Messiah. That to truly follow a person is to experience what they have experienced, to suffer what they suffer. It's to pursue what they pursue. It's to give up what they give up. It is to take on that very pattern of life of the one whom you call master. And so there will be a time in which as you speak with people that you will need to instruct them to count the cost. For following a Christ who suffered and was rejected and ultimately nailed to a cross will necessarily, as we're going to see, require us to pick up our own cross. And we're going to talk about some of that, Lord willing, next time. It'll be a fun one. But for now, the question, which, again, is the same question which Luke has been asking, is, so who do you understand Jesus to be? Regardless of public opinion, regardless of common consensus, regardless of friends and family and even many past church experiences that you may have been part of, who do you understand Jesus to be? Was he just a good teacher? Was he just a moral and ethical example? Was he just a mere prophet? Has he merely come to fulfill your own personal expectations of what you think God is supposed to be for you? Or do you understand him to be the one that God has put forth to bring in the kingdom? The one who has come to establish a kingdom not of this world, the one who has come to deliver sinners from that eternal debt. The one who has come to suffer and be rejected and be handed over and be nailed to a cross, and be raised up on the third day. Who do you understand this man to be? For that is the most important question you could ever answer. Let's pray.
And so, Father, I do pray that we would reflect upon such a question with a sense of sobriety and a sense of gravity. Pray for all in this room that we all might be able to say that we know and believe and most certainly love this gospel of your Son. I hope in my prayers that this word which you've given to us this morning in your providence might not leave us unreflective, but that it might cause us by the power of your spirit to better understand not only your love, but also your faithfulness. That we might understand in a fuller way your compassion and grace toward the sinner to send forth as one whom you promised of old. Pray for all here this morning that they might see a little bit more the glorious reality of what it means that you, the, the God of all creation, has come to us in your Messiah. That you sent forth your very own Son to be that Messiah, to take on flesh, to take on the weakness of what it means to be man, so that you might enter this world and rescue it from from its own lostness. So may we come, may we bow down at the foot of your cross. May we find comfort in knowing that you are a God who loves to save sinners. And so I ask that you would press that truth upon us, that we might have a hope, and that the result is that we might find a true rest by faith in you alone. And so I do ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.